Welcome to the Gain, Grow, Retain podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Gain, Grow, Retain podcast. Uh, you've got Jay and Jeff here as usual. And with us, we have Robbie Baxter. And you may know Robbie uh, from her books, the first one being The Membership Economy, um, which I actually uh, read back in 2016, 2017. Uh, it came out in 2016. And then uh, she's just released another book called The Forever Transaction uh, in April of this year, 2020, right in the middle of COVID nightmare. Um, so, but what I didn't know is that Robbie actually has a lot of uh, experience and a lot of deep thoughts on customer success and some cool resources that we're going to share after this podcast as well. Uh, but some really practical knowledge and experience there. So thank you, Robbie, for joining us. Good to see you. And, Good to see um, you too. Before we get started, though, uh, we always like to ask a little icebreaker question to get things warmed up a little bit. So the question is, what are you binge watching right now, if you're binge watching anything? And I have a backup in case you don't binge watch. <laughs> oh, this is sort of embarrassing. Um, but uh, we've been binge watching Phineas and Ferb. Um, I have, I have, <laughs> I know, but I have, I, so, so today um, is the Candace movie is coming out. Um, it's the world premiere. So my 22-year-old daughter, my 20-year-old daughter, and my 17-year-old son, and my husband and I have a date tonight to watch um, the new Phineas and Ferb movie. We've been preparing all week by watching old episodes and wow, by watching okay. the movie one. <laughs> that is, you familiar? I mean, okay. So I'm very familiar with Phineas and Ferb because I have a 9, 12, and 15-year-old. I can't remember if we talked about kids last time we chatted. But Phineas and Ferb is a super uh, witty TV show. Yeah. Kids show. I mean, for, for those who are younger who don't have kids, you probably haven't seen it yet, but very good. Okay. And I didn't know there was a movie. So where is that Disney? Is it coming out on Disney plus or? I think it's on Disney plus tonight. It comes out today. Okay. All right. Well, we might have to tee that up because we're always looking for a movie yeah. to watch. So, all right, good. Well, I'm, I'm glad uh, that was an interesting one. See, it worked. <laughs> so, um, all right. So you wrote the membership economy in 2016. Why did you write another book? Yeah. Um, it's a good question because, um, right, you know, we're talking about kids, writing a book is almost like having a baby, like it takes a long time, it's really uncomfortable, it's hard, you feel lonely. Um, so why? And then you have this moment where, where the book comes out and you're like, oh, it was so easy, I'm gonna do it again. You sort of forget um, how hard it was. But I wrote The Membership Economy, um, you know, back, I actually wrote it in, in, in 20, I was actually doing the writing in 2014. Um, and I wrote it because I'd been working with subscription businesses for almost 15 years. And I was still struggling to show people what I was seeing about the power of what I call a membership mindset. So really focusing on the long-term well-being of the customer and then developing product offerings that align with that long-term goal rather than episodic sales. And I would try to explain to organizations like that you could have this membership mindset and then justify subscription pricing, which is amazing for lots of reasons. And a lot of entrepreneurs and execs just didn't understand what I was talking about. Like they just didn't see how it could apply to their business. They didn't really believe how powerful it was. Um, you know, I used, I used to say I need a t-shirt that says make retention sexy or retention can be sexy or something. And um, plus five years ago, you know, flash forward to today, everybody's doing subscription, right? Everybody, everybody from, you know, Burger King to Caterpillar has subscription experiments out in the market. Yep. And the challenges they're dealing with are how do we actually implement it? Um, how do we make it successful? And it's a lot more than just slapping a price tag on it and saying, okay, you know, we used to charge $9.99 to buy the movie and now we're going to charge $13.99 for unlimited access to our catalog. Like it's more than that. There's so many more steps. It's kind of in a funny way, it's like customer success where like on one hand, customer success, it's so simple. Just um, 
have your team be really focused on the well-being of your new and existing customers so that they stay engaged and want to buy more. And you're like, okay, well, that seems easy until you try to actually implement it. And then there's a million little details to figure out. So that's really why I wrote the second book. Yeah. So the first one was why. The second one was how, right? Yeah, Maybe exactly. It's a way to think about it. Well, it's funny. It's funny that you mentioned the t-shirt idea, make retention sexy because Jeff and I have been like thinking about making t-shirts for the Gangrary Tang community. So that sounds like a good one. Like we could co-make that together. But I think to your, to your point, like um, the business model is very sexy, right? If you really understand the power and valuation that, that is derived from a recurring revenue model and a recurring cash flow stream, like that is super sexy. Nobody can argue with that. But what we've seen in our consulting work with SaaS companies is that sometimes the execution this still the how doesn't always match up. Everybody's enamored with the business model. They want that to work, but then they're not thinking about how to actually make it work operationally. And from an engagement perspective with the customer, still very siloed, still very um, sort of disconnected from that value proposition that the business model offers to both parties. So curious if you, if you've seen that in your work as well, people that sort of love the model, but haven't quite figured out how to get it implemented yet. Yeah. I mean, I actually divide that um, into two parts. There's um, I don't understand and there's, I don't want to do it. Um, Mm. you know, and so I think that there's a whole group of people that don't understand all the elements that go into, you know, it's not just slap a subscription price on whatever product you already created, right? Which a lot of companies do when they're moving to SaaS from like an enterprise model, right? They'll be like, well, we'll just charge like a, we'll charge on a subscription, but it's still our enterprise product. And they quickly start bumping up against, wow, it's so customized. Wow. What do we do when we upgrade? Wow. We haven't designed these products for, you know, configuration versus customization, blah, blah, blah. Wow, people, when they have a choice to get out of the model every year, they're canceling and we're not, you know, we're cannibalizing our own business. Um, That's like the, I didn't understand. And then there's this other part where it's like, I didn't want to. Like I have clients or I don't tend to want to work with them, but companies where they say, we want subscription pricing, but we, we want the kind where they basically spend the money, but then they don't use the product and then they forget that they were using it and they just keep paying us, right? Which to me, honestly... It's totally like the gym model. They're like, we want the gym model. You know, the gym model, yeah, yeah. people sign up yeah, and yeah. they're really motivated. And then they don't, by March, they're not going, but they don't cancel till July. And you get like three or four months of revenue without having to actually deliver operationally on that promise. And companies, they don't usually say it quite so, so vulgarly, but, you know, talk to them for two or three minutes and you get the point that they don't, if it, like I've gotten to the point where if a customer, prospective client says to me, something that sets off my, you know, ethics detector of like, we're trying to get paid without providing commensurate value. I don't want to work with them. Like life is just too short to, to do that. Yeah. Plus the model's not going to work in the long term, as you know. Yeah. Well, and the, the other interesting part too, right, is even outside of the, the value is the, the point that uh, I think we see, we've seen a lot of times in our consulting work as well, which is uh, you'll try and just kind of skirt by the, the renewal, right? And in our, in our minds, like what Jay and I have always said is like, like the renewal should be an afterthought if you've already done all the things leading up to the renewal, right? Like the renewal is just the contractual like signing of the paper when like we should, we should have already been like getting all that stuff set in place like six to nine months ago, like actually even from day one when they signed the contract, right? like, we should, totally. like we should have been, we should have been doing those things already. And so that's what I always find funny. And I think it kind of goes along your point, which is like, there's all these companies that are like, Oh, we're going to do auto renew and we're going to, um, Oh, we're going to do, you know, all these cancellation policy type things that like make it really hard for you to get out of this. And it's like, right all right, well, like, why are we trying to do all these loopholes instead of just doing what we know is right, which is like just going to deliver value at every one of these like right. little milestones throughout the customer journey before we get to the renewal. And like, it'll just take care of itself anyways. 
Uh, so I think that's, yeah. that's a point you always see as well, which is like, um, I think it's really hard for people to understand that there are different ways, especially in today's world, there are so many different ways that we can drive value back into our customer base that aren't just in our product either. There's so many other ways to go do that, that um, they forget about. Right, exactly. Because it starts, I mean, the way I think about it is it, it starts with what's the promise you're making to your customer. So if you're saying, we're going to help our customer, you know, whatever, visualize their budgets, right? Or we're going to provide software that's going to help our customers manage their customer relationships or, you know, whatever the, the solution is, that's an ongoing goal that that customer has. And what you're trying to build out um, as a vendor is a solution that comes as close to, as possible to solving the whole problem. So part of the problem might be we need some software and part of it might be we need our people to use that software and part of it might be we need to understand the bigger picture that's driving this, right? So consulting or education or um, support. Or, and when this software breaks, we need somebody to replace it and fix it immediately because we can't afford downtime, right? And all those things, that's what the product is. It's, it's all the elements that help you achieve that goal for your customer. Whole product. Nicely said. The whole yeah. product. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and I think what's interesting, you know, when I think about customer success is that they're really on the front lines of knowing what the, what the Delta is between what I'm trying to accomplish and how well this product helps, how much of it you help me with. So if I buy a white blouse, it's not because I wanted to buy a white blouse. It's because I needed it to complete an outfit so that I can give a talk and look professional, stylish, whatever the way I want to look. But what I, so what I really want is to always look appropriate for the situation and I'll pay a premium to have a relationship with somebody who can make sure I always look appropriate and I'll pay more than I would pay to get the white blouse, right? Yeah, Plus if yeah. they did all the work to get me into the store to buy that white blouse, wouldn't they want to say, Hey, why do you need the white blouse? Oh, you need it to be professional. Okay. Well, we can help make sure that you always look professional, yeah. right? It's, it's that kind of relationship. That's really, really important. Yeah. I think that's, um, one thing that maybe I, I think we always tend to see as well and is this fact of, of missing that mark, which you just mentioned, which is the, the idea that there is content and value outside of our own software that we can be providing to round out the experience. And I think a lot of companies get scared because they feel like if, if we're not mentioning our software by name in every conversation that our customer is going to forget it, right? They, they, there's this innate fear when you start thinking about, especially from the marketing world, right? Where uh, the, all the marketers out there are really afraid that if I'm not mentioning product X, you know, during every interaction that our, somehow our customer or somehow the market is going to like think we went somewhere else and went away. And uh, I think there's this shifting of the guard, so to speak, where uh, if you're starting to look at how SaaS businesses need to start marketing and how they need to be building brand value, it is way more outside of just to, to your point, it's way outside of just naming our software product and giving content that deals with our software. It's actually about what are all the things that our target, our ideal client profile, our ideal you know, persona, what are they trying to accomplish? And that's the content we need to be putting out. That's the message we need to be putting out because that we can actually start delivering on after we actually make the sale anyways, um, outside of our product, right? There's all these other services, there's all this other enablement, there's all these things that we're gonna provide that help make that vision true. So we should be talking about that vision in the, in the you know, early stages of somebody becoming a, a prospect and a buyer. Yeah, I think that's, that's so well said because um, there's sort of two scenarios there. One of them is um, we don't, you know, I recognize that you need these other things. I only sell white blouses. I know you need a bottom as well, a pants or a skirt. We don't sell that today. So I'm going to tell you, you know, or so you, you realize that and then you have to decide like either we're going to get into the business of skirts because otherwise we can't sell outfits and we can't sell, we can't sell Robbie on. We're going to help you look professional because I won't look very professional if I don't have both parts of my outfit 
Um, the other part is if we're not going to get into that business, if we're like, well, we're actually a blouse specialty, you know, that's what we know how to do and we don't want to go somewhere else, then you have to provide them with a partner, right? Hey, that's right. you know, we have a formal partnership with the skirt provider or, you know, there's actually this store right down the street. You should go there. They have great skirts. And like, if you've ever gone shopping and had your salesperson tell you that, it's the most amazing feeling where they're like, you know what? We don't have a lot of belts here, but go down the street. They have great belts. And as, as you said, first, recognizing what the goal is of the customer. Second of all, deciding what can we do to complete, to help them as much as possible on the journey. It could be we add in and layer in more value into our product, or it could be that we recognize and acknowledge that there are other people involved and that from your perspective, this customer, it's not about the blouse, it's about the outfit. Um, you know, we, so we, had, we had this exact conversation this morning in an executive team meeting. We're, we're actually calling all like 50 customers in 50 days um, just to, to get reacquainted, to get me up to speed and Jeff up to speed and had the same exact conversation. So taking it from the B2C, you know, clothes buying, you know, scenario into <laughs> software, it's the same thing in a software company, right? It may be even more important because yeah. it's, well, maybe not more important, but it's more complex, right? Because the ecosystem yeah. is more complex. And I can tell you confidently, you know, all the SaaS companies I've worked in, and we, we've probably worked with 60, 70 different companies over the past three years, just in our consulting work, the, the failures often, like, all products have flaws, all products have issues, they don't do exactly what you want them to do, it's software, it's fallible, right? But those usually aren't the things that torpedo the relationship, it's all those other things that you were just talking about, the things we need to do, the resources that need to be ready, the skills that the team needs to have, the other systems that we need to integrate with. It's all those things yeah. that actually cause us to fail. Yeah. Like, um, you know, I think a great example, you know, my focus is always, you know, for the last 20 years, I've been focused on subscription businesses. And while I'm not an expert on all subscription technologies, I know that with my clients, like I'll come in with a client and they'll say, hey, we're moving from an episodic kind of um, product offering, like where you buy it and then you come back and buy something else to a subscription where you sign up once and then you stay with us. And that has implications. Like if they want to have, they need subscription billing, right? They need an online community for their customers to talk to each other and to talk to the organization. They need some kind of a content management system so that they can share their expertise and maybe offer some online courses. You know, they have all these different pieces. And what I see with the vendors is a lot of times they're like, we're the ideal solution for a subscription company. And you're like, no, and I'm thinking to myself, no, you're not. <laughs> like you, yeah. do, you do two out of the 12 things they need. Yep. And what would be a lot better is if you said, we work really well in these scenarios and we're really good. If, if community is going to be important to you, if that's a key element, you probably want to start with us and build around us. But if you don't use you know, community that much, honestly, we're not that great. Like we're a me too in the billing department you know, go to one of the billing guys because they are really sophisticated there. And again, you get a lot of credibility there. Right. And you also demonstrate, because you're demonstrating that you understand the complexity of the problem. And also sometimes you can even anticipate for the client, like they don't know, they've never done subscription before. You've seen it a hundred times. You can look at them, like I always say the airplane test. Like if you're sitting next to somebody, and I'm sure you guys have had this experience, and they start explaining, you tell them what you do, they tell you what they do. And you're like, oh my God, we can help you. Uh, you're the exact right person. I can help you so much. You're going to be so glad you sat next to me. <laughs> My product <laughs> is your solution, right? Yeah. And, and then there's other times where you're like, well, I could probably sell this person, but once they sign up, they're not going to stay very long because this is not exactly the right solution for them. Like if you're selling, I don't know, if you're selling Lamborghinis and I say, 
I just had my second child and I have a lot of gear to carry around. You might say, you deserve to have a good time, lady. You know, you deserve to be fast and furious. You should buy a Lamborghini. I'm going to roll it out and be like, what am I doing? That was the dumbest thing I ever did. Like, where am I going to put the stroller? So, you know, so it's not so like that Lamborghini person should say, you know, unless you have two cars, this is probably not your time in life to be shopping with us. Yeah. It's, yeah, but that takes a lot of discipline. Sorry, Deb. Takes a lot of discipline. That's, takes a lot of discipline, right? That's what I was gonna go say. Like that's the the hard part, right? Is because you're in theory, like what you're inherently doing, and I think this is where it kind of dovetails with my marketing point earlier. Is um, is you actually feel like you're narrowing down on a very specific mm -hmm. niche, right? And that is scary to these businesses because when you start thinking about the total addressable market, you're you are kind of downsizing the opportunity, quote unquote, that's there. But I think it. Um, I think what tends to also happen though, and I think this is where you were getting at as well, is where if you start to expand your, uh, your, your market there, in theory, you're starting to water it down in some cases because then you're trying to, to um, almost like have too many different ways that your, your software can fit in and people start to water down what it can actually do. And then you start to conflate where it works, where it doesn't, which systems it integrates with, where it doesn't. And so it's, um, it becomes really hard, I think, internally on your teams to understand okay, what are we really selling and who are we really selling it to and what's the core problem we're still going after? And so I think you're, yeah. you're still on though. It's, it's just it's, like a really interesting um, complex, I think that starts to happen where you start to narrow focus. And I think that it affords you though, if you actually do it, you get so much depth. And then if you get the depth, I think you actually capitalize on the market more than if you went with a larger yeah. TAM um, perspective. Yeah, and it's, it's true in any business, right? That, you know, they always tell you it feels counterintuitive, but the more you focus, the more of, you know, the more of the value you get to capture, um, you know, and that's true even if you're in a transactional business where you're selling a product um, outright, but in a subscription business, it becomes like 10 times more important because not only is it easier, for, like as you point out, for the marketing and salespeople to be focused, but after that point of sale, it's easier to support them and it's easier to expand the relationship because you recognize them and you know that you have the exact features and functionality that they're going to need um, you know, one of the hardest things is, you know, and I've seen this with a lot of SaaS companies is like, let's say that they're, they're optimized for mid-sized companies, right? Like I worked with a, a early job in my career was as a product manager for a banking SaaS product. And we were really optimized, although it kind of hurt our egos for bank number 10 to bank number 100, right? Not, not the biggest banks and not the community banks, but the number one bank at the time in the world wanted to be our beta customer and oh, how flattering, right? So totally. we, opti we optimized our product around them. And what ended up happening was, first of all, they were incredibly demanding. Second of all, 90% of the features not only weren't, you know, our core customers capable, like needing those features, but having those features in the product made the product too hard to use, hmm. right? Because they were like- Hitch on both ends. What? I said, yeah, it, and so, you got attacked on both ends, right? We got attacked on both ends. It was too complex, you know, like, yeah. So the, and the, the learning from that is if we had just been disciplined and said, we're so flattered that you, oh, biggest company in the world want to work with us, but we're not optimized for you. Um, if we had been said, look, we're going to design our beta, you know, our beta testers are going to be bank 14, 27, and 92, right? Um, we would have had a much better product and we would have made life, because what ended up happening is, our professional services team and our customer success team, they had to take care of this big behemoth who wanted everything customized. And at the same time, you know, they were dealing with all of these incredibly confused and overwhelmed smaller, smaller banks that didn't have the teams to support what we built. Well, the, the, what, what happens next in that scenario is that people start equating the value of the customer to 
the, the dollar value that they pay. And then the dollar value that they pay becomes the way you talk about those customers internally. And so yeah. they're the little guys. They're the ones we don't actually, Jeff and I just had a fantastic brainstorm today, which maybe we'll run it by you to get your feedback on, on the way we're thinking about this. But, and then you, you inadvertently begin to degrade the way that you talk about your smallest customers, but your yeah. biggest, widest base and probably your biggest opportunity for expansion over time. But I, I come back to the discipline part. How do we, how do we help drive this thing home? Because a lot of companies have accepted massive, some, especially software companies are very expensive to get off the ground. So they've taken large investments. And when they see those market opportunities, they run at them because they know they're going to play well on board slides. They're going to, the, the right. marketing tailwind is big. Like all the operational stuff is sort of behind the scenes and down the road. Nobody's going to pay attention to that until it becomes a reality. I, I can't even tell you how many times I've been in that situation. So how do we like prevent that? There are very few founders in the world, I think, that are that disciplined. Right. But I think, that, I think that that's changing a little bit because there's so many SaaS organizations. And I really think it's the subscription that forces the discipline because you realize how uncomfortable and hard it is to have that, yeah. those big companies um, and how demanding. And you see how easy it is to support with a subscription the smaller companies. And so if you've been you know, in the customer success team, if you've been on the product team, you start to see the beauty of that subscription and then you pipe up. And I think the other thing that's happening is there's an increasing number of sophisticated venture investors who are very focused, who, who are exclusive to SaaS, um, exclusive to subscription, who understand that. But you still, I mean, everybody, you know, back to this, you know, let's get a t-shirt that says, you know, make retention sexy. They still talk about new logos, right? Let's get some new logos, right? And they don't <laughs> want the logo of the small bank. They want the logo of the big bank. Right. And yep. you've got to have that, you know, and I, you know, my first subscription client that I ever worked with was Netflix. And this is like dating me, but it was, you know, 2002, 2001. And one of the things that impressed me so much was how clear they were on who their customer was and why they're like, you, you couldn't, you know, it's so tempting in that business to like give somebody something free, like a toaster, if you sign up, but the value <laughs> of the toaster is greater than the value of the first three months. You're like, yeah, I'll do three months for a toaster but they, they signed up for the toaster, not for the subscription. And this happens all the time, right? With bundling, Netflix was like, no, we're not giving anybody any value beyond our product, right? Sign up for Netflix and get Netflix, right? It wasn't a promotional yeah. gimmick, in other words, yeah. right? It was a and product they, value. And, and lots of really interesting and exciting partners came and said, hey, we want to give away Netflix for free with our toasters or whatever, right? And they were like, no, no, we, we only want customers who want us. Yeah, and great. I think that's, that's the, I saw that discipline and it's, you know, it served them very well because their model, there's no mud, there's no mud in the water. You can see exactly somebody comes into the model and you know what they're going to do. They know how long is it going to take to onboard them and how are they going to behave? And then what's the difference between somebody who stays for a gajillion months and somebody who cancels in the second month. And I think some SaaS businesses need to have that same kind of discipline where they can look at a customer and say, okay, based on what happens in the first three weeks after the contract is signed, we, we in customer success probably know whether that customer is going to renew or not. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and then based on what we know, we're going to optimize, not just the customer success onboarding experience, but we're going to optimize how we sell because why bother bringing those people in if they're going to leave in three months? Yeah. Right. right? We'll pay ourselves and, back and, for that. Right. We're going to tell the sales team, we're going to tell the marketing team. And we're also going to tell the product team that one of the reasons that people are leaving is because you're missing this feature. And so, and so that's, I think, the power of the subscription model to clear the water 
and make it easier to see and understand your business model, which is what, of course, makes it so valuable. Yeah, that's, uh, I love that. And I think Jay said this earlier, but the way you describe things, I'm literally like, like, I, you like, I'm recording in, it. I'm like, I know, I'm like, oh man, it's like so, it seems oh. so, so straightforward. Um, what, so I love the example you mentioned though, because the subscription, subscription economy has really been around for a long time, right? It's just being invented or reinvented in different industries now. So, you know, subscription as a service is the new flavor of the day. Um, and so what, from your perspective, like what are, I don't know, is there like one or two things that you're noticing maybe that um, is kind of not really being recognized from the kind of the early subscription days of other industries and other things that, you know, other ways that we've adapted that with how SaaS is using it today? Are there one or two things that just come to mind where you're like, man, we're, you know, this is, the SaaS industry is really missing the boat here or they're not thinking about this uh, relative to how we've been doing it previously? Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, I also, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say like, thank you for the nice compliment about um, how I'm explaining oh, yeah. things. And if people, can I just make a little plug and say, if Go people for like this, Please. I have a, I have a new podcast and I would love for people to give it a listen, subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. Um, Cause I love talking about this stuff. Um, it's endlessly interesting to me um, in terms of the question that you just asked um, around uh, what don't SaaS entrepreneurs see that we've seen time and time again with longer standing subscriptions. I think it's really, um, the, the, the issues are around kind of focusing on the long-term relationship with the customer that you really should, when you're selling, you should be thinking about five years out, right? How are we gonna keep this person for the entire duration? Um, what is that going to look like? And how do we continue to evolve the offering to expand and deepen the relationship? Customer success, of course, they have those as their metrics, but how are we designing the product differently? So that somebody, as they move through, as they grow, as they have these new needs, we're right in front of them. We're guiding them. Um, I think another thing that I see a lot that I think is, is a problem, although a lot of people disagree with me, is I think that a lot of SaaS companies um, have pricing that's too complicated. Uh, you know, it's like, just because, you know what it reminds me of, like you said you have kids, it's like, yeah. you know, when you get a Crayola crayon box and it has 64 colors and you're like, I just have to use them all. And then you end up having this mess. And then you have some friend who's an artist and they pick like they look at the crayons and they pick like four different shades of green, two shades of brown, and they make something amazing because they have restraint. <laughs> right. right. I think a lot of companies, because the billing solutions are so powerful and flexible, they're like, yeah, let's do it all. Let's have, um, you know, let's charge by the seat. Let's charge by the feature. Let's charge by the service level. Let's have different pricing by region. Let's charge differently if they're willing to commit to five years versus two years. And suddenly it becomes the customer's responsibility to figure out what the best option is for them instead of being able to relax. Like the whole point of a subscription is that you can relax into it and say, I'm getting what I need. The company, the vendor is thinking about what I'm going to need and they're packaging it in a way that I don't have to worry anymore. And then suddenly I have to become the expert on pricing. I can't relax anymore. And it becomes yep. adversarial, right? Because right. if there's a best solution for me, that implies that if I don't have my wits about me, I'm going to get the not best solution for me. I'm going to pay too much. That, that's a, such a good point. And then I'm on my, then I'm basically on my heels, right? And I'm going to take a more aggressive and defensive stance. And then it's not like, I don't like when I, when I order something off of Amazon or when I do Netflix, Dropbox is a good example of this. Um, I, I know, like, I don't ever have to think about my relationship with them. When I get a bill, it's usually from Dropbox. It's going down somehow over the past 15 years yeah. that I've had a Dropbox account. And I'm like, how do I now have two terabytes of storage for less than I was paying, you know, right. eight years ago? I, I do not, I'm, I'm glad, but it, it's just that it's, I call it pricing integrity. And I think a yeah. lot of times what we see happening is, especially in enterprise sales, 
we're still negotiating for just the maximum we think the budget can allow. And that's somehow permissible in the, in the sales motion, as opposed to just having a very clear, this is what it is. Here's the value you're going to get. There's going to be puts and takes for us. Some people are going to get more, some people are going to get less, but you know what you're getting and it is what it is. So to me, as a customer success leader, somebody who's responsible on the back end for making sure that we renew and retain all those customers, it can be really hard to overcome pricing integrity issues from a retention standpoint. So not sure if you've seen that happen in the past. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because, you know, I, I think the truth is that if you optimize for the last nickel, right, they talk about not leaving money on the table. Um, first of all, you can do it for a while before you start dealing with the lack of trust and the basically erosion of your brand equity, right? Where people are like, yeah, they have good yep. software, but you really, you really have to negotiate like crazy or you're not gonna get a fair price, right? And that's not a reputation you wanna have where people come in with their gloves on ready to box it out with you. Um, right. The other, but, but you will make more money for some period of time. And I think one question is, you know, just because something's legal doesn't mean it's ethical. So that's just Robbie talking, like, that's just my own point of view, right? Like I'd rather make a little less money and have pricing integrity. Um, another thing that's happening though, is there's an increasing transparency around pricing, um, where, you know, like I was talking to somebody who runs a newspaper earlier today and newspapers, in my opinion, are terrible in how they <laughs> do pricing discrimination, right? So you guys might live next door to each other, um, and ha both have a, um, subscription to the same local newspaper or national newspaper. And one of you is paying triple what the other one is. And most likely here's the kicker. The one that pays more is the one that's more loyal. So it's yeah, not right. right because they're like, well, he's been around for five years. He's not going to cancel. He's already made it a habit. So let's raise the price or, you know, he paid a long time ago when our economics weren't as good. And so we charged him that high price, but like with Dropbox, right over time, they're like, oh, we can go cheaper and we can expand our market. The question that a company like Dropbox has to deal with is if we're going to lower our price for new subscribers, do we wait until our old subscribers call to, and threaten to cancel before we lower their price? Or do we just do it for them because that's the kind of company we are? Um, and that's the kind of company you are. It might sound like woo-woo and like, oh, I'm just trying to be so nice. But as there's greater pricing transparency, the like likelihood increases that you know what, what your neighbor is paying for their newspaper. And um, so these are really important issues, I think, for every SaaS company to be thinking about is how, how transparent do we want to be about our pricing and how simple should it be? All right. Well, I know we're almost out of time. Um, so I've got, you know, three takeaways. <laughs> one is the make retention sexy t-shirt that we're going to make. All right. I want the first co one. <laughs> we're going to co-brand it together. The other is the airplane test. I like that. Just like a simple test, like <laughs> how, how, how well do we fit together? Um, but then uh, what, what you said about, I mean, what, basically the whole undertone of this conversation is the, the focus on the long-term relationship. And I think you can do that either at scale with very small customers, and you can certainly do it, you know, at the enterprise level with, with larger customers. So this has been an awesome conversation. Um, can you give us, as we sort of depart here, like one tangible takeaway for somebody, let's say in the SaaS world already, in a customer success world, who is trying to focus on value with their customers, what is maybe one tangible, uh, like suggestion you could make for how they should go about interacting with their customers and having a conversation about value? I think that it's, it's really important to educate yourself on how your offering fits in with their real goal. And I think if you understand that, 
if you understand the context for why they're buying from you, you will be much better able to serve them and much better able, frankly, to provide good feedback to your colleagues in product marketing, sales. Um, but that's, that's really where it starts is understand their journey and how you fit in. And um, that'll unlock all kinds of, um, of uh, depth of relationship and information that'll be gold in the future. I love it. Spot on. That's great. Well said. Cool. So the forever transaction, you should go out and get a copy of that. However you read your books and then the uh, subscription stories. What was the tagline for it again? True tales from the trenches. True tales like a crime, from the trenches. Like a crime podcast. Yeah, I was about to say, oh, yeah, I, it's got some undertones. I like that. Uh, our, our community is, are they voracious consumers of all things, you know, educational around this space, subscription, awesome. SaaS, customer success. So I know they're going to love that. And then um, we didn't really get to talk about it too much, but you've got a LinkedIn learning course on customer success. And we're going to try to get the word out about that as we uh, release this podcast, which we'll do, I don't know, yeah. in a week, week and a half. So we'll, uh, yeah. we'll, we'll, you want to say something about it real quickly, just so everybody knows? Yeah. Yeah, I have a, um, on LinkedIn Learning, I have a course um, on customer success, and I'd be really glad um, for the Gain, Grow, Retain community to make that course available to anybody who is interested. Um, I, I, because I'm the author, I'm allowed to give it away for free. So awesome. um, would, love to, would love to share it with, with your community. Okay, cool. We'll, we'll let everybody know how to, how to request access to that so they can get it. And I look forward to checking that out myself. So awesome. awesome. All right. Great. Have a great weekend, Robbie. It's great to Yeah, you too. Hey guys, thanks so much for taking the time to listen to the Gain, Grow, Retain podcast. If you liked what you heard, please take a moment and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues and subscribe. We really appreciate it. Talk to you soon.